Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone, welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. And with me today, I have Johnny Cocker. Hello. Hello, how are you, Sam? Very good, very good. Can you tell the audience and listeners sort of a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, I mean, you know, in most basic terms, I suppose. I um, I started racing when I was 14. Always had an absolute passion for cars, all things engineering, motorsport. Um, and that journey is kind of taking me through some really great times with motorsport racing specifically um but also met a bunch of amazing people engineers drivers team owners um all of which has been really you know kind of a an incredible experience and that's kind of led me to the point where we're at today where with jcr which is my business which you know kind of keeps me busy 24 hours of the day um basically developing parts for road cars which are designed for guys who want to use the cars on track or spiritedly on the on the road um and you know kind of calling on the experience that i've got personally as a driver but also the expertise of people that i've met you know through through my time as a driver uh you know the engineers and designers and all sorts of kind of particularly clever people and you know kind of just called on favors and in, in the early days i suppose <laughs> and you know just kind of gone from there and it's strength to strength really and it's just kind of led me to the point where we're at now where you know the business is absolutely uh you know kind of flourishing and you know it's in everything's kind of going pretty well really considering yeah yeah um okay well let's i think let's let's sort of dive back a bit let's start from the beginning and then we can get on to what you're doing right now yeah, um, sure. so you you started racing at some point in time 
Is that, did you did you do the full carting and all that sort of stuff? No, I didn't actually. It was it was a little bit unusual. I mean, you know, I mean to be honest, the the actual scenario which kind of led to me driving a racing car was actually quite interesting. I've I've always loved cars. That's always been my kind of primary passion. Followed motorsport as as a kind of not as a secondary thing, but you know, obviously that's the ultimate, isn't it? You mm. know, go racing a car. That's that's the coolest thing you can do with it. Always kind of wanted to get into it. We got a cart when I was I think thirteen and there was a local track and we just kind of it was nothing more than it was actually more cost effective than going every weekend yeah. hiring a car and, and doing that whole thing. But never did a race. So my my kind of journey into karting was purely just from a fun perspective. You know, it was me and my dad used to go on a weekend and like bat around in the rain and yeah. that was about it. It was no like competitive karting dad situation at all. It was it was all me really, you know, kind of wanting to to do that and being fortunate to ha- to have the support from my parents, which is obviously you know kind of usual story. And yeah, so that that whole thing was kind of just literally fun, like nothing more to it really. Um, I mean, actually, to this day, I've done one kart race, ever, <laughs> which I really didn't want to do. I did kind of as a not as a favour, but a mate of mine was getting his kart license, and I said, oh, "I'll come along." And yeah. Yeah, ended up having to do it. I got wet and hated it. But yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, and yeah, so kind of had the car, was doing fun stuff with that. And then we were visiting um, some family, friends um, down in Cambridge. Woke up, we were there for like maybe a few days or something. Woke up in the morning and mom and dad said, oh, we've heard of this thing called T-Cars. And, you know, it's like they saw it on the local news and it was actually like... I think like five minutes away from where we were staying. Mm. So they said, oh, why don't we just like go and turn up and have a look? I was like, cool. Okay. You know, I didn't really know what it was at all. And to be honest, neither did they. Yeah. It was kind of a bit of a exploring to a, a situation. But yeah, so we went over, we met the guys who, who built the cars and whatnot. And, you know, little did we know really that that was actually the start of what was to become quite a pretty cool story really i mean it was very organic we visited those guys we talked about it and we said you know what's your experience uh, well i've done some karting you know <laughs> yeah. but nothing really we then basically when i did a test in a car i mean not before i had to then learn to drive a car in <laughs> an industrial estate somewhere with my dad um so kind of went through that whole process and and did all that did a test actually you know thought it was thought it was ace obviously and the thought of racing at this point i was still 13 and it would have been in view to racing like the next season so my birthday's in august so it would have been you know like kind of rolling on into the i think Mm. it was 2001 anyway we kind of went through the motions ended up buying a car doing some testing went and did some racing um so that was kind of where it all began really it was it was kind of like it really wasn't me pushing it it was kind of like a you know looking back it was my mum and dad kind of going well this would be cool yeah and yeah, yeah little did they know um, so what are these cars what were these cars what's a t-car it was it was basically the concept was 
kind of similar to now what you'd know from like Janetta Juniors, say for instance. So it was a a small, I don't know if it was like a full scale thing, but I think it had a Vauxhall 1.6 engine in it. Um, It's like a hundred horsepower, like built like a NASCAR, obviously. Um, because they were expecting everybody to crash into each other, which actually <laughs> they didn't really. It was, you know, the concept was great. It was from 14 to 17 years old. You could tra- you could race the cars on proper MSA circuits. So, you know, like we went to, I think, Croft, Donington, Silverstone National. Um, I think we did Brands Indy, you know, like cool tracks. Yeah. Um, proper circuits in the UK. And the concept was more like, you know, rather than go-karting, which guys even then were spending vast sums of money doing yeah. um come and drive a proper car a proper car and drive it on a, on a real race circuit and and learn your craft that way i think i was unusual that i'd actually never driven competitively in a in a in a car at that point so my whole kind of background comes from learning in cars yeah whether or not that actually makes any difference or not i think from the driving perspective i was absolutely fine like I could be quick, you know, once I actually learn how to drive. Yeah. Um, but the racecraft, you know, that's that's certainly something which I had to catch up on mm-hmm. because I just had no experience of it at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, there's, you know, there's some great names who've kind of gone to do really cool things off the back of it. Um, Tom Chilton, um, Tom Onzo Cole did it. Max Chilton obviously did it later on. I'm awful at remembering stuff, but there's actually, I'll let you do some research there. But yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. There's actually some really, <laughs> really cool it. guys who've done it and, and gone on to do some really good good stuff in the future as well. It was kind of a, a catalyst for other series taking on um, the concept as well. You know, like Janetta kind of ran with that and that's then been super successful, you know, with the whole yeah, they look, feeder just series. Looking at some pictures of them now, they're like sort of saloon cars or look like saloon cars. Were they relatively cheap to run yeah i think off the off the top of my head i think it was like 25 or 35 grand you know to to run the car for a full season which yeah that's pretty know, good in, in relatively speaking then i'm sure i'm sure the whole concept was that it was actually no more expensive than going racing competitively in a car hmm. um but obviously the learning was such that you know you kind of you're learning on real circuits and you're in and around paddocks where you know there's other cool things happening so i'm pretty sure i think it was either the year before or the year after i started you know the the series was following formula renault and kimmy and lewis were both in formula renault mm-hmm. at that point in time so you know it's kind of like it was right in the crux of everything going on kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So you're in and around all the proper teams. And, you know, I think a lot of the lads who did T cars kind of had their eyes fully set on formula racing, but that was, that was never me. I think kind of touching back on what I said initially, my, my kind of motivation and interest for this always came from cars. So even today, you know, I don't look at a formula one car and go, Oh, wow. That's, you know, that looks you must incredible. do it to a little bit. You must a little bit because they are pretty cool. I mean, from an engineering standpoint, you know, yeah. absolutely insane. And the, the speed of the things is just incredible. Nothing but admiration for the work that goes into them and how they manage to get something with four wheels to, you know, just go that quick, travel yeah. so quickly. But put one next to a, 
an old Group C sports car, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather jump in that. <laughs> Not just because I just think that that's just, you know, I don't know. It's I just think it looks prettier. I think it's kind of a more in, inviting prospect to, to jump in and have a go. And so kind of when I started racing, my whole motivation was, as I say, the cars. That was mm. kind of what got me going. I had no aspirations to go into single-seaters or race a single-seater. I mean, as it was, that would have been impossible anyway because we just didn't have the kind of funding required to yeah. to make that happen. Whereas going down the, the more sports car GT route, at that point in time, there was nobody really young who wanted to do that. You know, it was okay. kind of more of a you, – you went down the formula route and you realised that you either ran out of money or you weren't good enough or whatever – and then you were like reverted back to GT racing kind of yeah. still happens now. I think I was a bit different in the sense that I wanted to start off with that route. That was always my plan. Um, yeah, you know, I say plan. We, we didn't really have much of a plan. It was more <laughs> kind of just, you know, kind of see where things take us. And I think actually, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate where things have kind of fell into place quite nicely. Mm. Um, obviously with good guidance from good people. Um, but yeah, it's 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 easy when you when you're in it to just think, okay, yeah, I've done, I've done well, I've won a championship, okay, yeah, I deserve this opportunity. But you know, it's just not the case. Yeah. It's there's an awful lot of luck that goes into it, and I think if I was to retrace my steps, you know, twenty years later, like now, it would be a lot more difficult. But yeah, I mean, it's it's been an amazing journey, really. So so then you did these T cars, and then. Did you bag a GT ride? How did it, how did it work from then? Yeah, so basically we were living we were living in the northeast. Um, all my family are kind of Manchester based. We then moved to the northeast when I was only young. Redline Racing, who ran Carrera Cup cars only at the time, um, were based you know kind of like ten minutes down the road. So it was like, well, I'd love to drive a Porsche. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, I think. Maybe we were supporting them at one or two of the rounds or something like that. So of T cars, you know, I'd kind of had the mm. opportunity to introduce myself to Simon, um, who's the team owner, still runs still runs the shop now, um, obviously. I kind of went down and just had a conversation really and just said, I suppose we talked, you know, what's what how do we go about making this happen? There was actually like incredible finance deals at the time for buying i don't know whether it's the case now or not but buying cars through porsche motorsport but like with crazy finance deals you know almost like some of the road car deals that you see these days yeah yeah um i suppose to kind of encourage people to buy a car go and run it and do some racing um going and doing british crow cup at the time might seem like a bit of a pipe dream I'd managed to gather a bit of attention locally and from a few kind of sponsors and stuff like that. And we kind of made it happen when I did a test in a car. I was 16 at the time, kind of just to kind of get my head around, you know, will this actually, I mean, I'm gonna, is it going to be a complete waste of time or not? But it wasn't. So uh, I drove the car for the first time at Croft and I was like, I'm sure I was like within a second or something like that. And I've never driven anything like that at all, yeah. ever. And, you know, looking back, like, did I really know what I was doing? Like, <laughs> probably not. I just kind of, like, drove the thing and hoped for the best, I suppose. So, 
yeah, it was quite a cool, a cool thing. So I started off, um, and this was 2003. So there I was like round one, 2003, 16 years old, doing Carrera Cup in GB. And it's like, okay. But realistically, like thinking back, it nothing really phased me at that point in time. It was just kind of like, this is what I'm racing. Yeah. Um, the fact that I was getting told off for missing lessons in college and stuff at the time was <laughs> kind of, you know, it's quite funny, really. Yeah. So we had a really good season. I ended up finishing um, fourth in the championship, I think, or third. I think it was fourth, like one or two points off third. That year, there was like Barry Horn, Richard Westbrook. I think Richard won the championship, actually. Uh, you know, it was, it was like a really amazing experience meeting really cool people. Um, and yeah, off the back of that, I then I then got an opportunity to, so we were still obviously paying at that point, um, but with decent side sponsors as well. So, you know, I think we I think we covered like half of the budget with with sponsorship, which was That's amazing, really, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, and you know, there was a bit of a USP in, in the sense that I was 16 driving a sports car and that's like back then really wasn't even though it wasn't that long ago people like I say young drivers at that point didn't really have an interest in GT cars yeah. so it was it was kind of interesting you know from a sponsored perspective it was getting a lot of attention um and then at this point I was already involved um I think partway through that year or from you know early on in that year with Tim Sugden who yeah I was actually just caught with the other day and you know kind of see what was going on but he's a great guy he was a good friend of Simon Leonard um who obviously run or and runs Redline he was kind of instrumental in setting up a deal then with um Group M who were looking to do British GT the year following uh with a Porsche so you know I had a good amount of experience driving a Porsche and back then the difference between a Carrera Cup car and a GT car, you know, like a GT2 spec car was actually very little. Like they didn't really have much aero, maybe had a little bit more power. What generation you was know. this? Was this 996? 996.2 RSR. So that was like the first car and it was pretty big news. Like, you know, that somebody was bringing one of those cars into British GT yeah. at the time, at least we kind of got a deal set up with that and, um, and started off there. But yeah, and then, you know, we had an amazing year. We won the championship, which was, you know, kind of a pretty big deal because I only turned 18 the weekend of the championship win at Brands. So, you know, it was like, it was pretty cool, really, to be able to have that kind of under my belt already early on. I think we did Spa 24 as well that year, which was kind of a bit of a, <laughs> you want to come and drive at Spa? I was a forced driver. I did the start and I did maybe a few stints. It was kind of a dipping the toe in the water kind of situation, yeah. which was again, a, you know, a leap of faith from, from Kenny who, who ran group M racing, you know, again, an amazing opportunity where at the time I definitely appreciated it. Mm. Um, but, you know, only now when you look back, really, do you think, wow, that was actually, you know, that was a pretty big deal to, yeah. to get an opportunity to do that. I can't imagine driving, driving those sorts of cars at an age when i mean you were driving them before you could legally drive one on a road to be like yeah, racing so, a porsche or something 
Must have been such yeah. a sick <laughs> situation to be in. I think I think I was so I, I was on the podium at Thruxton in Carrera Cup. I think I got a second at Thruxton, which was kind of my first, I suppose, pretty decent result mm. in something quite proper. On the Monday, I had a driving lesson. <laughs> so, so it was quite funny. You know, obviously, I knew how to drive, but that was like my first driving lesson at that point. Um, but like the uh, the driving instructor, I can't remember his name, but he was a really cool guy. And he was like, it just kind of let me do what I want. You know, it's quite fun, really. We just kind of drove around and chatted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was funny. You know, I was, it was a unique kind of situation where, where I was kind of successfully racing cars and then wasn't able to drive on the road. But yeah, it's, it'll kind of move from there. But yeah, quite cool, actually. Did you have to learn to use your mirrors on the track and be like, oh no, I actually, there's consequences to me not looking? Yeah. I think, um, I think the biggest thing was just learning how to just deal with people coming the other way. I hadn't yeah. really yeah, yeah. kind of managed, managed that before. <laughs> um, yeah, it's quite weird, actually. But I passed first time, thankfully. Nice, nice. So it was always good. Um, but yeah, so it, it, you know, it's been a bit of a kind of whirlwind <clears throat> initially, I suppose, in that sense. Quite, quite a lot happened really quickly at the start. Off the back of that, I got an opportunity to race for Kenny again, the Group M car. He wanted to enter a car into Asian Carrera Cup um, the year after British TT. And um, so that was the first year that I was kind of, you could say, like paid, I suppose. Yeah. Which, you know, is incredible, really. And I've been racing cars for like four years. And from year three, we were already getting decent sized sponsors in year four was a big push obviously to do British GT because that was a big step up but the sponsors also stepped up as well but it was you know it was kind of it was a big you know strain on my parents being able to kind of support that because you know all there have you know been completely you know massively fortunate to be in that position we would have never been able to do you know like one year of Formula Renault that's yeah. That's, that was just like way beyond what would have been possible um, financially. So, you know, to be able to kind of get that far, realistically, had an opportunity not come along, like it would have just stopped. Yeah. And nobody was under any other illusion, really, you know, no more than myself. I knew that I had to do whatever I could to, to make it happen. I think for me, that was just doing the best I could do in the car. It, it was just like, well, where do you start? you know yeah. trying to get money from people you know I, I remember like a a few times i'd pick up the phone and try and speak to people but i just think now like if somebody picked up the phone and asked me for money i'd say no as well <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> especially some kid like i'm racing a porsche feel sorry for me you know it's not really a thing is it so extremely fortunate that things just kind of fell into place we did asian crow cup the next year i won that as well so you know quite quickly we were five years in, I'd already won two championships. So I was in kind of like a good position to hopefully mm. then kind of make a name for myself and start going from there, really. Oh, I was just going to ask you about the sponsorship thing. Because like, like you just said, like if someone rang me up and said, hey, I want to go racing, do you fancy sponsoring me? Like, absolutely not. No, thanks. Like, the, nah. Obviously, there are people that are interested, 
But it, do you spend, okay, maybe not so much now, but like back then, were you spending a lot of time trying to put forward propositions to people? And, you know, how, how do you even go about that in a way that might remotely be successful? Yeah, I mean, we, we tried a lot of a lot of different ways. Um, and at one point we had like a, an agency who were kind of like, you know, I've been so detached from this whole world for so long now. Mm. Um, I don't even know how it works now. I don't know if the same kind of stuff happens. Maybe it does, but we had an agency working for us who were kind of working on a commission basis. So if they managed to get some money in, um, which would go towards our, our budget, then they would get a cut of it. So it was kind of like a no win, no fee situation. (laughs) Um, nothing came of that, you know, because ultimately you've just got people in an office calling other people in an office, asking them for money. So, yeah, it just doesn't work. The op- the real opportunities came from, and I still think now is exactly the same, especially with the business side of things, just being yourself and being a nice person and being pretty genuine, you know, and, and if an opportunity comes, it's probably off the back of someone thinking, yeah, I could invest in that because either like you know, Johnny's a nice guy I like what he's doing. He works hard at what he's doing. And, you know, I want to be part of it. I want to help out. To try and genuinely justify, you know, put your image on my racing car and it's going to make you money or it's going to earn your business or anything like that, I just don't think it's true. I, I just don't see the value in it unless you're on a Formula One car or something which is genuinely getting huge attention realistically sponsorship at the kind of national level is either your dad or your dad's mate or your dad's mate's mate you know so again I was fortunate to be able to get a genuine sponsors involved who realistically were involved because they wanted to just be part of the journey and Mm. you know that was that was incredible really to have that kind of level of support from people who I'm sure were under no illusion as to how successful that would be, you know, they would, they were never really going to see any kind of real return. Um, you know, I've, I've had some really incredible people support me, you know, early days. And that's, you know, kind of, I suppose was always the, the thing which kind of made this all happen really. So yeah, yeah, it was, it's pretty cool. Nice. Sounds cool. And then you, you kept up doing, and yeah, your point about just being, meeting people being interesting being nice just being that sort of person you're definitely helping and you know people go it might not make business sense but i quite like racing and i quite like that guy and i can write it off and whatever and you know maybe let's chuck him some cash um yeah that, yeah exactly that, that definitely works so you carried on doing race gt i'm on i'm on driver db for those that have not <clears> come across this website it, it lists everyone's rankings essentially and what you've raced in pretty much uh, um, I never look at that. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> it, it gives a reason. The number will be way idea. too big. <laughs> but then, so you carried on doing British GT. You yeah. did British GT for a few years, and then you did ALMS. Off the back of British GT, I then got an opportunity to go and do um, FIA GT3, which was its first year. So that was a European series. Um, a race with Barber Motorsport with Leo Machitsky. Obviously, I've had lots of involvement with with Barwell and Leo, 
um, in subsequent years. You know, as recently as a couple of years ago, obviously mm. racing in British with um, with Barwell as well. But that was a good that was a good year. We won the Aston Championship within a championship. There was kind of at that point in time there was an overall championship, and for each manufacturer there was kind of like a another championship. The BOP at that point in time wasn't what it is now. So mm. I think the manufact the the championship organisers appreciated that if you maybe won a race in a Porsche, that was actually a lot more difficult to achieve than winning <laughs> a race in a Ascari. I think at the time was like absolutely ballistic, and everybody yeah. was moaning. You know, it was it was kind of no- nothing's changed really in that respect. Everybody still hates BOP. Um, <laughs> Although now it's just incredibly close, and I think they're doing an amazing job at just making the cars fair. But yeah, we won the we won the Aston Championship within that championship. So I would never really consider that, you know, a full championship necessarily. But mm. you know, on paper, yeah, we won three championships in three years at that point. Um, I think then at that point we got Lord Drayson. I think either approached Barwell or there was some connection. He wanted to go racing. He wanted to go and do British GT. Um, Barwell put me forward as a good candidate to to drive with him. Mm. That's kind of where the next kind of slot of you know involvement came there. So we raced in British. We finished second by like a couple of points. So which was like a real shame because um, that was a really close year, really good one. And it was a shame to miss out. You know, that would have been then four championships consecutively, <laughs> yeah. um, which would have been pretty awesome. That, again, in the Aston GT3 car, DBRS9, like big V12, that was just, that was again, sick, like going yeah. back to the whole car thing, that was just such a cool car to drive. You know, it was like actually pretty quick, really. I mean, certainly nowhere near as quick as a modern GT3 car. I think, in fact, the times which GT4 cars do now are faster than what we were doing back then. You know, so but in a very just, different way. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think the game's moved on, obviously, like it always does. But that thing was just like moving around all the time, and it was just so much fun. Like at the start, it actually had a H-pattern gearbox as well. Yeah, which was, you know, the like the major upgrade was going to a sequential. You know, <laughs> so it was like, you know, these. I feel like I've kind of grown up. I, I, I started GT racing it an age where I've kind of grown up through the whole GT3 thing happening, which has been really cool. But yeah, we, we then raced a the first GT2 Vantage um, in American Le Mans series the year after. That year was not easy. I think we went through 18 engines or something like that. Um, there were some major issues with the, I think one of the races, Salt Lake, I think we did four engines in a weekend. And it was just like brutal yeah yeah what, that was hard work what happens in that process if you bought the car from aston and it, the engines just start blowing up do they help you out on that or they're just like yeah okay here's the price here's a new engine yeah i think it, i think it was a bit of a point of contention really because obviously from paul's and barwell's perspective you're like well we're not doing anything wrong you know put a brand new engine in it and three laps later it's like falling out of the bottom of the car yeah <laughs> really there's like something going on here you know it's not our fault it's nothing we're doing wrong and it was slow as well which didn't help but yeah the, i think i'm pretty sure that aston kind of like you know stepped up and we were effectively 
you know, kind of the the development for that car. Mm. Certainly in the early years, it got much, much better very quickly. You know, like everybody was behind it. Everybody was trying the best to to make it happen. That car turned a massive corner once the factory decided to run it themselves and put the kind of necessary funding and, and work into it to to make it successful. And obviously ended up being an extremely successful car. Barwell, well, Paul specifically got tired of obviously just going through engines and not winning races. So yeah. we loved ALMS. It was like, that was just absolute highlight, you know, for me. Still is. That was in 2009, 2010 season. Actually, 2009, end of 2009, I got an email from Dale White, who was um, White Lightning Racing. He was running the team out in America because he just had like vast experience of American Le Mans series, knew all the people, the tracks, the places, you know, that was kind of super important to have somebody like Dale because a British team going over to America and just kind of like learning on the job just isn't good enough. You know, yeah. you need to be able to hit the ground running. Um, but I got an email from Dale. Um, I think it must've been like September, October, 2009, and it just said, how did you feel about driving an LMP1 car? I was like, well, I mean, yeah, obviously, <laughs> I'd love to, but I didn't really have any context. And he's like, okay, cool, leave it with me. It's like, right, okay. Um, <laughs> and then he, yeah, it kind of transpired that the whole Aston thing was, you know, kind of becoming a bit tiresome for the guys who were putting the money in. And Paul wanted to to race at Le Mans. This was all, always the thing. Initially, the plan was to race at Le Mans in a GT car because of various reasons, one of which being the fact that it was like five times cheaper than doing it in an MP1 yeah. car. That was always the plan. That was the plan with the Aston. That's why we went GT2 racing because there was a class and we could we could kind of go through that. We took the jump. We ended up getting a Lola um, chassis, Judd V10 engine. Um, but that's how we did. Yeah, it was just insane. You know, we, so this whole thing was like happening. And I think, you know, the, again, it was another point where there was like an awful lot of trust on me. I'd, I'd never driven anything with downforce, more anything more than a GT car, which is like nothing really. I know it's kind of more now, but still a GT2 car back then was probably not far off a GT3 car. Now it's nothing no huge amount of downforce um so I, sorry just to cut in for the for the people listening how much downforce does a gt3 car make do you have any idea of like an actual number uh, at speed um no no idea because no, really. you get all these manufacturers like <laughs> mclaren or saying the p1 comes out and they're like oh it's 600 kilos of downforce at 180 miles an hour which to me sounds like nothing you know obviously i know chris harris did that test didn't he where he he drove a Senna back to back with a GT3 yeah. Yeah. and the advertised figures for the Senna were like, was it like 900 kilos at 200 kilometers an hour or something, yeah. something ridiculous. And a GT3 car isn't that much, you know, and a GT3 car feels like it's on rails compared to any road car. A lot yeah. of it's a tire, but GT3 cars have a lot of downforce, but an LMP1 car is like absolutely another world, you know, in terms of that. And you do need to drive the car quite differently. Mm. So uh, we did a shakedown at Stowe Circuit at Silverstone, which I don't know if you've driven around it, but it's basically like a go-kart track Yeah, yeah. in an 800 horsepower <laughs> LMP1 car, which I'd never driven on before, in the damp on slicks. 
And like, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I think I even said, maybe I didn't say on the day, maybe I said after like I've done a couple of races, but I drove the car that day and I genuinely was like, I cannot do this. Like <laughs> it was just such a massive step for me to come from a GT car and then jump into an LMP1 car. You sat on the ground, you can't see anything really. You know, everything's hard mounted. Like the moment you touch the throttle, like everything's vibrating, it's properly loud and it's just insanely fast. Proper carbon carbon brakes, which don't work until you add, you know, three or four laps around there. So it was just a, an absolutely massive experience for me to get my head around. And uh, I remember the guys saying like, oh, so what do you think? It's like, oh yeah, fine. Like, you know, <laughs> you just kind of do what you can, don't you? Um, shaking. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Go and have a little cry in the truck afterwards. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we ended up then going to do Asian Le Mans series end of 2009. And it was kind of like a feeder. So they ran, I think, two or three races. Um, and we were just going to kind of drop in and do one. It was just kind of like a practice. Mm. The car was ready. We ship it out to Japan, do this race at Okiyama. Um, and then the car would then go to America and get prepped. And then we could go and do ALMS the year following. Um, so we went to Japan and we were like quick in testing, but we just, you know, never really ran any tires and we were just kind of going through the motions, went into qualifying, they took all the fuel out, put a set of tires on and I've stuck it on pole. I was like, oh, (laughs) like nobody was more surprised than me. Um, (laughs) And I I think I was having a conversation with somebody about it the other day, actually, and went through, you know, you looked at the entry list of that race and I was like, ah, there's like some proper people on that list. And there's me P1. So it was cool. There was, you know, the factory Aston Martin there was there, Pescarolo were there, Audi were there, Collis were there um all sorts of proper proper people yeah um and there's me like having never driven one and stick it on pole so that's obviously testament to the car was a good car clearly um because in any any class like that unless you've got the car underneath you you know you know amount of heroic driving is going to get you into pole position but the team were like really together um there's a lot of experience pulled in when we made the transition to the lola um graham moore was the the engineer for that who i still you know stay in touch with graham he does a lot of stuff now with tuttles and the you know that latest singer yeah yeah um creation thing he's been pretty instrumental in that you know he's a really talented engineer knows what he's doing great guy um but yeah so that was kind of a bit of a wow here we go and then all of a sudden there was you know the the trust that the team had put in me to make that step as well was kind of justified. And I think everybody went into that winter thinking, okay, cool. You know, here we go. So there we were, LMS, you know, next year, kind of everybody was ready, expecting pretty big things really. And we did, we did do well. We ended up finishing third overall in the championship against some proper, proper people. Um, You know, Paul was, driving really well but i think he'd be the first to admit you know he's not a pro and we were a pro-am pairing mm. there was some there was some amazing people timo bernard and, and klaus graf were in the porsche in like you know factory prepared yeah 
Porsche. Yeah, we were there, kind of winning races and finishing third in the championship. So it was it was pretty awesome, really, to be able to do that. It kind of like stopped at that point. So that was like I suppose a bit of a low point in terms of you know what was my career at that point was like wow you know we kind of won a number of championships won races in the top class we'd raced at Le Mans that year as well in the LMP1 car which was just like literally absolute dream scenario um we didn't really get a result but we had massive problems with the car um but we were quick you know like in in qualifying we were quickest petrol at the time which was kind of against when it was the diesel hybrid era yeah, yeah. that was all you could really hope was you know, if you were a petrol car, you know, we were up there with the rebellions and doing all the good stuff. You know, everything was, was good. We just had issues with the car. Um, but into 2011, it all just kind of stopped. Um, Drayson um, decided that we wouldn't go racing. Quite a late decision, um, which kind of left me high and dry, really. It was, I think, March when we got the call. Yeah, we were meant to be doing Le Mans series, Le Mans, Asian Le Mans series, the year following, and like all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah. It was all like basically there. So I'd said no to other opportunities and then ended up being left with nothing. So that was a real shame. Kind of cobbled together some some stuff, and but it wasn't like a full proper year. Um, so that was a real shame to at that point, which was and felt like, you know, this is the start of being in a position where I could maybe get myself into a proper factory drive yeah. with whoever, you know. Um, we didn't really have any conversations with teams at that point, but I think until you start having a conversation, you never really know where it can lead. Yeah, um, It certainly felt like we were on the cusp of kind of getting making that next step. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, the the whole situation was still overall great for me. You know, I got to race an incredible car um, in some amazing championships and ended up coming away with wins and trophies from the championships and all sorts of stuff. But it was just a shame not to kind of carry that momentum on. Mm. Um, it was pretty much at that point, actually, where I thought this is a bit of an eye-opener. You know, I've kind of been making what I felt like was good money at the point at you know, driving racing cars, living the dream. And then all of a sudden it was like, bang, stop. Okay. Yeah. I, Shit. Like this isn't great. So that kind of opened my eyes as to the fact that realistically I needed to have something else as well. Something that I could fall back on, not necessarily fall back on, but could either run, run alongside or was able to, you know, kind of supplement the racing or even completely replace it if I was in a situation like that. So that's where the whole JCR thing started to kind of come into my head. Um, I didn't actually action anything for like another couple of years after mm. that, but I was at that point where I thought, wow, this is really obvious that I need to have other opportunities. Also at that point, things were like quite different to when I started racing as well. You know, it was actually a lot more difficult to get a sponsor, say for yeah. instance, and it was a lot more difficult to get yourself in a situation where somebody would take a driver on merit rather than a driver who, you know, was maybe not quite as quick or not quite the 
the guy that they wanted in the car, but had more funding or had funding. Yeah. That that was the point where it felt like maybe just because I'd not had to do that for a few years because it had kind of just been carried at that point. Yeah. Then it was kind of like, oh wow, this is like the real world again. <laughs> you know, I'm like up against all these people and actually like maybe I'm not anything special. I'm just like another guy who's trying to go racing and and have fun really. So yeah, that kind of opened my eyes really. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that must have been all come to like a sort of slamming halt and just be like, ah, okay, this this may not go on forever. And all these people that are paying for you to drive with them at some point, like you said, if someone else can come in and go, I've brought this amount of sponsorship or whatever, they might go, okay. I mean, he's good, but like this guy's pretty good and he's brought half the budget. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like, that's inevitable. And I think um, the cars actually you know, it's so much easier to drive now than they ever were. And that's not just being nostalgic. Like, you know, I think if you take somebody who's quick in a GT3 car now and put them in a 2006 spec GT2 with sequential box and no paddles and no ABS and the cars just weren't as good with tires, which didn't last as long. And the mechanical grip was nowhere near what it was. You know, I think you would see much bigger deltas in lap times from driver to driver. I don't think it's any coincidence that now like times are closer than they've ever been across the full grid, especially between drivers with relatively low experience and drivers who are particularly, you know, stunningly quick. There's like next to no difference realistically. Yeah. Um, That's an interesting one. Like the, like the difference between, let's say, a gentleman driver or an an average gentleman driver, because you get fast ones and slow ones and whatever, and a pro in a GT3 car versus, like I do some radical racing, SR3. And I would say, and that's like the difference between a pro and like a good person is quite a lot. Like it's like six seconds mm. or something or five seconds or something like that. Maybe you can get down to within two or one may like but you're at that point you're pretty pretty damn good what's it yeah well how does that compare in gt like how quickly can you get someone to pretty quick yeah extremely quickly i think you know a gt3 car is in my opinion is too easy to drive you mm. know the the concept works and the reason why it's so successful is because realistically the guys with the money can get in the cars and drive them quickly and be competitive so they want to invest in that because yeah. why would you want to go and do a championship where you're six seconds off the pace? You know, it, you're just not going to want to do it. So I can completely understand why the, the cars have gone down that route, but they are too easy to drive. And that brings its own kind of downfalls really. Um, in order to be quick in the car, you have to drive the car quite unconventionally. And also the car needs to be set up in such a way that it's, you know, ultimately, like the Lamborghini was a perfect example. The car needs to be really, really on its nose to be quick. And then due to the fact that it needs to be on its nose, you need to drive it in a particularly strange way, what I would consider to be strange, in order to extract the lap time. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like yeah, in, I mean, in a weird es- way. essentially, the, the car has to be so pointy in order to be able to not have an understeer balance when you're in the middle of a corner that you can't take a conventional entry into a corner with that car. 
Um, it's not the case for all others, but this is just my experience with Lamborghini. Yeah. Entry into a into a corner needs to be squared off massively. So you, you turn in like what feels like 100 meters too early <laughs> because you need to take a straight line to the apex, then turn it and then go. Okay, yeah. Um, and obviously each and every car is going to have its different kind of strengths and weaknesses, but that's just one example of you can you can get away with not doing that, but maybe you'll be like two or three tenths off. Yeah. And but to, to get those two or three tenths, you have to drive the car like completely differently. And ultimately that's where a gentleman driver, like a, a good gentleman driver, will drive the car conventionally and it will not move. Like it won't do anything freaky. Yeah. You just brake, turn, go, brake, turn, go. And that's just what you do. And you'll be within a second. Anybody who's capable of driving a racing car should be within a second in a GT3 car. Because if you're not, then you would be five, six seconds off in something yeah, else. Yeah. Um, they, they are just that good. I think that's kind of, that's changed the game a little bit in terms of modern racing. It's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just my thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah. Does that make, <laughs> if, that, if must you make them... it, that must make it much harder to win a championship. If, if you're like, we are both really damn good, but because of everyone is really good at that, then it gets harder yeah. to consistently pull. And I think that's a good thing. People. You know, it should be hard to win a championship and it should be close. And you don't, nobody wants to see the same person on pole oh, and no. win races every weekend. The concept that SRO have got, the whole GT3 kind of master plan was always to have, you know, the cars be as close as possible. And whilst being easy to drive and also, you know, like the balance of performance is something which they work on so, so hard and, you know, really is good. Obviously some cars are going to suit certain drivers more than others. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, if you win a championship in GT3, like you deserve it for sure. You can't look yourself into that. You know, we came like tantalizingly close to getting the overall championship um, just a couple of years ago. Um, we won the Pro-Am Championship um, and we won the overall championship until about half an hour after the race when they decided to reverse some oh. position. It is what it is. Um, but yeah, it's hard, like, as it should be. You know? yeah. um, but personally, maybe just because I've experienced the more kind of raw stuff, but I think if you took the British GT grid and then put everybody in the same teams but with cars from five generations ago, yeah. it would be a different story. You know, I think the gaps would be a, an awful lot bigger, but ultimately that's why people want to go, go do GT3 yeah. racing because the cars are actually quite easy to drive. And uh, the, it's, it's, it's a massive budget sport and presumably a lot of people they're getting in, they want to drive those cars. They don't want to go and spend four or five, four years racing cheaper other stuff. Like you don't really want to be binning a GT3 car. I guess all the systems and everything make it easier. Like you still see some horrific crashes, but yeah. easier yeah. to keep the cars on the track in, let's say, like wet conditions and stuff like that, or changeable. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it does change a lot when they're, when you're in the wet, and the cars do become more playful. And although the times are still extremely close, I think it's it's more of a you see who's got more to him you know in terms you know the, the good people will always be at the front yeah. in the wet in my opinion yeah i think it's pretty hard to crash a gt3 car unless you have a failure or somebody crashes into you realistically 
you know, you've got to be so far beyond the limit to actually have an accident in one. Yeah. Um, people do, but you would, at that point, you'd be crashing anything you were driving, you know, from a road car to a GT3 car. It doesn't really matter what you're in at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you recently, you've been driving with, I don't know whether you still are, with Sam. Yeah, so Sander Hahn, um, we drove in 2018, 2019 together in the Lamborghini in British GT. So the first year was um, very much a learning year. We actually ended up doing pretty well, um, but it was definitely a learning year. Um, and the focus was always 2019 to be like a you know a shot at the title. And, you know, we did, we won Pro-Am. Um, and as I say, we should have won the, the overall realistically um, but it was a it was a great you know it was a great experience um sam's coming on come on an, an absolute mile um we started about 18 months previous to the first year of racing just doing some tuition in road cars and it just kind of led from there really after 2019 sam was upgraded to a silver graded driver and because i'm a, a gold we were no longer able to drive with okay. one another so that's that's another another way in which the championships manage you know the success of teams and drivers bop is pretty sorted now like the cars are basically all the same the teams have to push really hard to get the most out of the car but when they do everything's basically pretty level but the the driver grading system is you know is extremely difficult because as you said you you know you just said you could have a good am or a, a poor am they both be an am yeah so at what point does you know how do you categorize somebody's skill level you can't really and you get people getting downgraded when they hit a certain age and you're like yeah but that person he's like done tons of racing yeah. and then they go back yeah, down to yeah. a silver or, or whatever there's or... definitely some there's definitely some sneaky silvers out there and <laughs> some questionable bronzes do you know what i mean um i've i've been a gold like from the start just due to the fact that i won british gt when i was yeah um, when I was 18, it was like, well, you're a gold. You've won a national championship at an early age in a GT car. And I've tried to get downgraded, but it's just like banging your head against the wall. If you went and did a bunch of races and came last, would that get you downgraded or not? I don't know. It's quite an expensive way to get yourself downgraded, <laughs> though, isn't it? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Can you do some casting um, or something? It probably wouldn't do you much good. You may, maybe you wouldn't get a drive off the other end of it. Um, <laughs> No, I think it's a bit of a tricky one. But, you know, obviously me and Sam were able to, to race together um, for those couple of years and had a great time. So that's kind of then brought us up to, I suppose, you know, most recent times. Off the back of what happened in the championship, I really had absolutely no interest of, of racing again in 2020. Um, so I, I put literally zero effort into finding a drive yeah. for 2020 at all. As it happens, that was actually probably quite a good decision, really, just due to the fact that other things ended up happening. Yeah, I, I think really then, you know, it kind of opened my eyes to, you know, what racing has kind of obviously just evolves, doesn't it, into into the marketplace that it's in. And it's definitely feels more political and financially driven than it ever has done from my perspective mm. and in my opinion manufacturer support even in the national levels and potentially some bias which might go in one direction or the other i think plays a big part in ultimately 
who ends up being successful or not. And if you're not kind of, if that's not decided at the start of the season, then I'd be surprised really. I think there's definitely feels like there's a game plan for me. You know, as I said at the start, my passion has always been the cars, the motorsport, whilst it's not secondary to that kind of is in a way, you know, I enjoy racing cars because I love driving cars. That's my passion. Yeah. Once other things get in the way of ultimately enjoying what you do, I just don't really want to do it anymore. So that's kind of where I just kind of thought, like, do I really need to be putting myself through this? You know, I've, I've got at this point now a successful business as well. And I'm earning no money driving racing cars anymore. And I'm taking time out of a business which is making me money to go and do something which is just giving me nothing but stress. Yeah. Like maybe this, maybe <laughs> I need to have a bit of a rethink. Um, so that was kind of my thought process at the end of 2020, uh, at the end of 2019. Going into 2020, I just kind of made the call that, you know, I'd just kind of, if something fell at my feet, I'd kind of pick and choose. Mm. There was a few opportunities which potentially could have flourished into something which ended up coming to nothing due to the whole COVID situation and how disrupted everything was from that perspective. So, you know, in a way I'm kind of glad that I, I made that decision early on because I wasted no time. Um, yeah. Obviously that was not something that I knew was going to happen, but, you know, it ended up being quite a good call, you know, again, into, into this year, there's no racing prospects as we, as we say, but you know, that's not to say that I won't be in a racing car in some capacity at some point so really just been focusing on the business and that's where you know i kind of i was having a conversation with somebody the other day about it actually and just said i did more driving hours seat time on the track in 2020 than i did in the whole of 2019 and 2018 put together and that was driving my cars developing products and having fun you know (laughs) that felt better than (laughs) that felt better than than the the two years of racing i've done previous Obviously, you miss the the kind of competitive nature of it, but ultimately, you know, it's kind of you have to weigh up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I first came across your products. Um, it must have been Porsche related. I think it, you, you popped up in various Porsche groups, being like, "Hey, I've got an exhaust. You guys can buy." Um, yeah, <laughs> or getting talked about. And I think I believe a friend of yours called Guy, who I know as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, he had a system on his GT3 RS. And yeah, I'd that was known, days. I'd known about your. That was so droney, so loud. I think it was, like oh, was full, it? full straight through. I think that was sort of pretty much. Straight, I can't remember what was on that on the yellow car. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was super, just like abrasive. Yeah, he had, he had like time. a full obnoxious spec on that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that I've I noticed straight away was you liked working with tricky materials. It was either yeah. tit- titanium or Inconel, as in like those are those are generally it seems like the materials that you most of your products come out with. Yeah, how come you've gone down that route rather than just, or even having stainless steel as well? From roughly 2018, we started to introduce the the Porsche products into the line, and predominantly, the product line is made up of exhaust systems. So that's again, you know, if you're a car guy you generally like nice sounding cars. That's a big part of it. And so, you know, Porsche is a a kind of unique in the sense that you can, you can 
transform them in many different ways you know like there's actually quite a big difference you know say we've just got a, a gi Yaris and we've yeah. done a system for that and you know we've gone down the route of doing everything the way that it should be done but ultimately it's a three-cylinder turbocharged engine <laughs> and they don't sound particularly clever yeah um so you kind of controlling that whilst trying to extract power and whether it's made out of stainless steel or titanium or in canal or it's three inch or two and a half inch diameter or whatnot like they basically all sound the same because yeah. it's just that's just kind of the nature of the of the engine whereas the porsche products you know you can really have a create a distinctive sound which somebody will hear and go and now would say oh well that's probably got a jcr exhaust on it yeah. and that's kind of what i wanted to create early doors um so we we started with I had a GT3 RS at the time, which was the test bed for the majority of the first kind of wave of products that came mm. through for that car. Was that um, a Gen 1991? Yeah, Gen 1991. Yeah, I mean, obviously an amazing car. All the GT Porsche products are incredible from the from the factory. Um, so really, it's just a case of massaging them into what you want them to become, you know, so... Mm whether you want it to be more road focused or more track focused, you know, there's products which can do that, but, you know, kind of accept that one will probably be at the detriment of the other, you know, to some degree. Um, so it's just always like finding a nice balance. The reason why we went down that route with the materials is because that's motorsport, you know, uh, Inc. L625 is what we use for what we'd call the hot parts of the exhaust. Um, so the manifolds or, on turbo applications would be you know straight off the off the turbos mm. the first section of the exhaust which sees the highest temperatures and then from there we've used either a mixture of grade two or as next titanium which is not necessarily even the same gauge throughout the system so we'll change the gauge the weight of the material and the thickness of the material in different areas of the exhaust and the spec of the material just to make sure that we're kind of extracting the most out of the system. It's definitely a more expensive way to go. You know, even if you just made a, you know, like on on your Porsche, for instance, you've got the center silencer. If you were to yeah. make that center silencer in titanium in grade two, in one, you know, in 1.2 mil grade two, which is, you know, your kind of standard approach. If you were going to make a titanium exhaust, that's fine. But, what we do is we'll change the the thickness of the material as it goes through the different parts of the exhaust and we'll use different grades of titanium <clears throat> depending on what temperature each section of the exhaust is going to see. Ultimately, you know, you might end up with saving half a kilo and it adds two or 300 quid onto the price. You know, I think a lot of other companies would would just go, well, nobody cares about half a kilo but people do care about spending 300 quid more. Yeah. And whilst I agree with that, like <laughs> I just think, well, but nobody else is doing that either. So yeah. that's where we come in. We're, we're kind of taking a different approach to creating these products in such a way that, you know, if you were going to put these car put these products on a motorsport application, then you know, a pure motorsport application, you could go a little bit further, but we're just kind of breaching the gap a little bit between mm. pure motorsport and road car. And 
ultimately that's kind of resulted in you know that's been taken up really nicely by by the 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 kind of the customer base and the community who are kind of behind these cars and i think there's 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 probably a surprising amount of people out there who actually want that kind of stuff you know yeah. they're happy to spend more money because they're not just getting a run of the mill stainless steel exhaust which you can buy from 10 other companies and everybody's saying how wonderful it is but realistically they're much the same um i think our stuff is is different and you know i think we're just providing a choice and i've i've never pushed the product anything that we do i've never said it's better than somebody else's product because xyz you just say this is what we've got yeah this is what you might find interesting about what we've got and then just let let people do the talking really um let the product do the talking so yeah it's been it's been really interesting and we've now built a product line which has got you know we've got well over 100 products now um 60 to 70 of which are exhaust based and yeah it's it's been really a lot of fun you know for me because obviously from my racing experience and knowing what a car should feel like and can feel like with with the right changes made it does give me i suppose a unique advantage such that i'm the one driving the product development and also i'm the one making the decisions as to what changes need to be made to to make the car faster and more enjoyable or a product better achieve what we're setting out for it to to do uh, once it's installed on the car so yeah, it's it's good fun. It means that I get to drive cool cars and <laughs> without anybody moaning at me, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that avenue to go down of going, you might not want it, but we're going to make the best stuff the right way, and we're just going to do that, and then leave yeah. everyone else to do their thing. It does pick up the people, and generally Porsche. I think people that buy Porsches or Porsches are a little bit like that they're like they like stuff made well properly and that sort of thing and you go okay i could buy this like i've got a stainless steel bypass pipe because i was like that was just what was available at the time and also it was relatively cheap and i was like yeah no why not ticks the box but i do like things that are made really well and i love like Mm. i've got like a bottle opener at home that's just like it's just a really nice thing and you're like oh yeah i really like that and i can see (laughs) how people come out with you know, and go, might pay you pay more for a thing that you go. This is a bit of art, as well mm. as has the some performance increase of some sorts. How would you say, in terms of like note, is is it a noticeable difference driving a let's say the GT3 RS or the GT4? Let's just say the GT3 RS with your full super lightweight exhaust versus stock. Absolutely, like monumental difference i suppose it depends how much of the exhaust you change if you were to change just the center section of the of the system you know it is a noticeable difference um i suppose the more of the exhaust that you change into these more exotic materials and methods that we we use the more difference that you're gonna see and feel and hear if you go to say for instance you know this is why we offer so many different products because not everybody's the same not everybody's looking for Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For one solution. And we try and take a, the most modular approach to all of the parts as possible, mm. such that if you want to change one section of your GT3 RS exhaust, and then you want to put somebody else, you know, another company's side sections on, yeah, like that's fine with me. I've got no issue with that. You know, you got to look at the reason why somebody would buy a 200 grand car and then start changing the changing components on what is a perfectly good car. They're doing it because it's fun. So. Yeah. To, to kind of offer a choice is one thing, but to take also a choice away by saying, actually, if you buy our center bypass, you've also got to buy our tips or yeah. you've also got to buy our sides. Or I just don't think that's right. I think, you know, just try and offer as much choice and freedom as possible. And if, you know, as, as much as possible, I try and have a conversation with the owner and gather what they're looking to achieve and just give good advice, you know, just, the amount of times where I could, you know, on a daily basis, oversell stuff to to owners is unbelievable. I would, I, you know, I just will not do it because ultimately, I know what it's like to be on the other side of that. And when you're looking, when you're asking somebody for, you know, good advice, and you don't get it, then it leaves a bit of a sour taste, really. And I think the last thing that I would want is for somebody to put parts on their car which i ultimately know is not really right for them but yeah i sell a few more bits and that makes me feel good it's just that's not how i work um so offering a broad range of products which kind of try and cover every single different facet of what somebody might want to achieve from from changing a product on the car but yeah there's there's a major difference you know if you change the full exhaust system on a GT3 RS we ran on one of the BRDC days, which was a no noise limit day at mm. Silverstone. And it was like 118 decibels. So, yeah, it's like, it's pretty noticeable. Um, and then in, in terms of handling, because like, they're how much lighter is that system than a standard system? Uh, if you change the full system like that, so if you went to our in-canal manifolds yeah. um, and then our full, what we call race pipe without silencers, it's like 42 kilos lighter than the stock system um, and makes around about 35 to 40 horsepower more as well. So obviously on a Porsche, if you take off 40 kilos off the back of the car, that's going to be noticeable. But also you're adding you know, a good chunk of power as well mm. onto what is, you know, Porsche's, you know the NA cars; they're they're not particularly fast in a straight line. They're very efficient with the power that they've got, but if you add in genuinely a chunk of power and torque, um, it does make them faster. 
for sure. Um, you know, our GT4 is a prime example. The stock car is heavily, heavily restricted through the exhaust. You know, you've got the particular filters, you've got the new so you've got a 718. You've got a 718 GT4. You've got the newest GT4. Yeah, 718 GT4. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the the exhaust system is like super restrictive. And that's something which we addressed really quite quickly. Um, And the power gains are just like phenomenal. You just, I remember we ran it on the dyno and you see the gains and you think, it's like mixed emotions almost because you're like, <laughs> that's brilliant. But equally, I now need to deal with people saying that's just complete rubbish. You know, there's no way that you're going to get 45 horsepower from changing an exhaust or an A car. That just doesn't happen. And I would agree, but it does on the modern stuff because you've got so many restrictive emissions devices yeah. and the exhaust system is built to control the sound level so harshly. Um you know that there are absolutely huge gains to be had um from just changing simple components so yeah on the on the gt4 we've you know we picked up like almost 10 miles an hour down the back straight at silverstone that's mad yeah which is huge um you know so it goes from being actually quite a slow car to something which is genuinely pretty fast you know so you've got a GT3 RS won't get away from it in a straight line now. And through the corners, there's actually very little difference. So, you know, like a stock car will do a two, trying to think what we did in the stock car. I think we did a 219 in the stock car. And then our car with suspension mods and a few little aero changes and the exhaust, we're down into like the 15s now. So it's like four and a half seconds faster. That's a lot. Um, which, you know, is a, is a big chunk for just changing parts on a car. Um, all, all with the same tyre, obviously. Our next step will be to go from the, the stock Cup 2 tyre to a Cup 2R. Um, and we're expecting to be down into like the 10s, 11s with that. Which then when you look at a <laughs> GT4 quick. spec race car, you know, that's basically about the same pace as like a modern GT4 car on slicks in qualifying. Um but something that you can just drive home and use on the road if you want as well. And that's that's kind of a cool thing. That's pretty hilarious. So do you think that will translate into the next GT3? And actually, is that the same on Gen 2 991 RSs? Because I know they had OPF, but and also the next yeah. batch. Do you think if we remove a bunch of that gubbins, you'll have a chunk more power? Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely power to be had, less so on the GT3 RS, the the exhaust system on the modern so the the last batch of gt3 rs had particulate filters same Mm. as the speedster um obviously porsche were kind of caught in that weird position whereby they still had 991.2 cars to deliver that so the last run of gt3 rs which ended up being visac cars in the uk and the speedster but they had the the shutdowns with the factories with the new regulations and emissions and all that sort of stuff they had 992 GT3 engine and exhaust package ready to go past, you know, with emissions which were going to work. And it was like, well, do we develop a, a whole new system for a, a very short run of cars or do we just put 992 GT3 parts into these last cars and then all of a sudden it's passed? And I think it will become more apparent 
soon, but we called it pretty early that that's what they've done. Um, so the individual throttle body cars, um, which are the, the also the particulate filter cars, there is quite good gains. So the rear silencer on there, you gain like 15 horsepower, which is quite a big change for yeah. just a rear silencer change. Um, we're also doing the manifolds as well for that car to get rid of the particulate filter and swap out the cap for a, a race cap. And yeah, I'm expecting to see more like 20 horsepower, something like that. So I think the lot. full exhaust package on that car is going to be more like 30 horsepower gain, but that's still going to put you into the realms of the pre OPF cars where, you know, with, we've got guys in the U S running our full race system on E85 with a tune as well. And they're making over 600 horsepower. <laughs> with the NA cars, which is pretty awesome. Um, obviously, you know, E85s kind of like cheating a little bit, but um, still, you know, kind of mid to high 500s with normal pump fuel, which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. And that's significantly, that's that's a lot more punch. Yeah, yeah, it makes a big difference. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, what sort of things have you done to GT4? You said you've done a, a couple of like little aero mods and um, suspension changes and stuff like that. What's what sort of things have you done? So we've we've kind of tried to, you know, we've hit the GT4 pretty hard, really, in terms of development. So obviously we've got various different um, solutions for the exhaust uh, for each section of the exhaust. Again, taking that whole modular approach, such mm. that you can change each individual section of the exhaust and and kind of swap and change with OEM or other manufacturers or whatever and build what is your perfect kind of system for the car. Um, beyond that, we work closely with Olin's. Um, so we've got a, a TTX damper kit for the car, which just gives, you know, kind of a, a huge range of adjustment and really brings the car up to an, a, a new level. So obviously Porsche are the absolute masters of, making sure that their cars all fit within the hierarchy of the range. So they don't want a GT4 being faster than a GT3. And equally, they don't want a GT3 being faster than a GT3 RS until it's the new generation. So invariably, you see 992 GT3 is within a second of 991.2 GT3 RS around the ring. Well, that's no coincidence. That's just progress. And then the new 3 RS will be a few seconds down the road. And that's, that's the way to go. I think with the PDK cars coming with the 718s now, they're obviously going to be, I mean, a, a GT4, 718 GT4 is as fast as a 991.2 GT3 around Silverstone, for sure. Like within a few tenths in completely stock form, both cars. Yeah. So Porsche have to be quite careful what they allow the GT4 to have. So it's got quite a skinny tire. The rear suspension isn't kind of particularly clever there's quite a few kind of different areas of compromise. So mm. it, that kind of presents a, a nice opportunity for somebody like us to take a GT4 and actually not have to do anything too intrusive and all of a sudden you gain quite a lot of performance. So suspension, really all we're doing is bringing it up to the level of what you would expect to see on like an RS product. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the car gains, gains performance, the exhaust just we're uncorking what's already there and just, you know, kind of making the car what it should have been from the factory almost. Um, and just undoing all these different little things, which Porsche have done to kind of make sure <laughs> that it sits nicely within the range. So yeah, it's, it's, it's nice. Obviously we've put the dampers on, like I say, we've changed the rear wing 
to a club sport part, um, which just gives a greater range of adjustment. It's a little bit more efficient, more downforce when you need it. Um, no other aero mods at all. Um, we've kind of just gone down the route of really thinking, okay, well, Porsche developed the club sport car. The rear wing is to is there to work with the factory front, front splitter, which is the same as a road car anyway. Yeah. Um, we've got some parts to try on the underbody and the rear diffuser. Um, but I don't think yeah, it's not really our thing to have stuff hanging off the car and dive planes and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Because while some of our audience and customer base will use the cars on track pretty seriously, you know, that's kind of, yeah, I'd, I'd rather kind of make a car which is can do everything well. And, you know, just bolting on downforce with big, ugly parts is it's just kind of easy. You yeah, know, that's yeah. not particularly clever. So, you know, we kind of don't go down, down that route, really. Um, brakes is actually a quite, a quite important part where we've made a big improvement. So our car came with factory ceramics. I mean, the, the, the new 992 generation of 911 in the GT3 has got a, a new technology in the disc. Um, but the previous generation is, is actually, I think there's a bit of a misconception over, you know, do you run iron discs for the track? because they're actually more suited for the track and the ceramics are better for road use. Well, ultimately the only difference is that yes, like for like to replace them is cheaper if you replace an iron stuff, but iron stuff wears out way faster than the ceramics ever do, especially if you look after them. And especially if you run a more track orientated pad with the factory mm -hmm. ceramics, quite interestingly, I think Manti is still on their original set of discs on the, on the test uh, GT2 RS, which really? has run something like thirty to forty thousand kilometers around, you know, wow. circuit. A lot of which has been on circuit. Yeah. Um, but they've got a different pad material, which is a padded pad. Actually, you know, the, if you change the pad when it's down to about fifty percent wear, it just manages the temperature, and the disc actually ends up being looked after really quite well. So. We've tried all sorts of different things, and now we run surface transforms discs and the padded yeah. pad combination. I'll, I'll be honest; I was super skeptical because the, the factory stuff is so good. You know, it's super lightweight. There's no fade, really, to speak of, um, so long as the car's got sufficient cooling. Yeah. Um, and you know, you wouldn't really think that was an area of which needed attention, but you know, they contacted us and said how do you feel about trying our parts? Because we know that you run on the car on track like twice a week. Yeah. You know, we can actually get some proper subjective feedback from you guys. Um, so we put a, we put a kit on the GT4 and like for sure it's better. Absolutely. They just don't seem to wear at all. There's like no dust at all. And they're dead quiet, which the factory stuff isn't. And, um, you can also resurface them as well. So when you do get down to a point where they don't necessarily wear away, but you get enough pad deposits such that you start to have any issues relating to that, you can just have them resurfaced and they're like a brand new disc again. Um, but ultimately the performance is better. You know, the car stops better. We're seeing 0.1 to 0.15 G more um, retardation, which is just like massive really yeah they're just you know they're just working really really well for us so it's nice to try something which you're a little bit skeptical of and then you actually go oh, actually and then it yeah, works out good it's funny yeah. you're the 
second person that I've heard about Trevor's Transforms from this year. Um, my ceramics on my 907 RS are kind of get on the way out. And I was looking at replacing them. And then I found out how much it cost to replace and was like, okay, let's just have a look around. Because this, I know if yeah. I replace the ceramics on that, it's like a 10-year-old set of ceramics. I was like, there's got to be new tech in this. Yeah. And I got pointed towards Surface Transforms. And they, yeah, I had this similar sort of thing. It was like, you, they last a lot longer. You can refurb them. They're like half the yeah. price, like all of this stuff. You, are you running the stock calipers or are you running different calipers with them? Yeah, stock calipers. The, calip- the stock calipers are perfectly good um they're extremely light they've got uh, as much power as you'd ever need temperature regulation is good you know the cars have got good cooling anyway so it's not really an issue there but yeah certainly for your car obviously you're going from you know the previous generation again of ceramic technology so it would be even bigger jump for you you know that's something which if we don't make it ourselves then you know i want to be absolutely sure that it does what we think it should before yeah. offering it to any of our customers. So we do offer surface transforms as a product for various different cars. And, you know, they, they are good. They just do what they say they do. And, you know, we've had absolutely zero issues at all. And we've done 30 or 40 days on them and they look brand new. Yeah. Um, which is, which is pretty surprising. That is pretty good. Um, do you, and do you, cause you're, you generally test stuff on track, but you also test it on road. Do you run the same pads on the road? Yeah, yeah. So we run again. I've I've kind of we've got another car which we I say look after, um, but we've done a lot of bits too. Um, good friend of ours, Johnny Walker, who has got a GT3 RS uh, Vicet car, and that's got a, a ton of bits on that car, and we kind of use that as more of a that literally only gets run on the track. Mm. I think I've driven that car from our workshop in Warwick to Silverstone on the road. And other than that, it gets trailered around, you know, it's just kind of, yeah. that just literally gets run on track. It's done five and a half thousand miles on track. Um, so there's no better test bed for something, which is, you know, our products than getting beaten up every day, day in, day out um, under proper conditions. Um, but that car runs the track pad option. And our car, the 718, um, runs the, the road slash track pad. Yeah. Realistically, yes, there is a performance advantage, but only if you've got the tyre to support it. So on Johnny's car, we've got Cup 2R tyres, which the track pad can kind of match, and that, that's kind of a good match. But with a normal Cup 2, the track pad is actually a bit too aggressive. Um, so you get into ABS activation too soon, and the calibration doesn't really kind of match up. So yeah, it's, there's more than just obviously the, the overall power. It's the way that the bike comes in and the curve of that, if that matches up with the way that the tire works and all this, this kind of stuff. So we've tried like a number of pad options, but realistically the, the pad, which makes no noise and makes no dust and works from complete cold is absolutely fine. And I was driving the GT4 in the snow the other week and like yeah it's just fine the brakes work from absolutely stone cold and they they didn't even make a noise then either so our products are yes we can we can kind of more easily make something more track focused but i think ultimately creating a package of parts which works well on the road and track is sometimes more challenging um because it's you kind of have to try and achieve a broader range of 
targets um whereas on the track it's like yeah they, they make a ton of noise and they're a bit too bitey and yeah. they're not particularly fun and all this sort of stuff but it's three tenths a lot faster well yeah run a, why wouldn't you um so there's there's way more compromises to be made yeah 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 i like how you've come out with some some things that i haven't seen anyone else do um that you did you have a a sort of bolt-on set of tips that make your car quieter which i yeah. was looking for that forever as a product just as like i actually don't run my car on tracking it that much anymore so it's it was one of those ones where i looked at and this this is a perfect example of, i was like well i kind of like to try it out but i don't necessarily like so i don't necessarily want a titanium system i would definitely have bought a steel system and i'm somewhere in the middle and then i don't know maybe yeah. we'll wear that at some point but yeah like as a, as a product that is such i thought that was such a neat idea and how, yeah, how much noise cool. do you save but like volume do you save with that between five and six decibels static and dynamically it depends on where the noise meters are um obviously on the on the gt3 um so 997 generation um the tips are a bolt on bolt off yeah so just thought right if, if we can make a set of tips which flow sufficient amount to <clears throat> to not restrict the the power at all and also weigh less than the stock tips then we've got a product which is is genuinely a win-win so you reduce the sound level you're not losing any power and you're not applying any more load on the system at all than the factory tips would so between five and six decibels reduction just with a two minute change which you know a lot of our customers have just got them in the boot because if you go to donington and you're doing a 98 db day and your car runs 97.5 db every single day you're there but then it's wet and it's a bit humid and the noise and the, the wind's blowing in the wrong direction and then all of a sudden you're 100 db well they don't care that you've done 10 days previously yeah. and passed it's like today you're over the limit so you having something like that which you can just stick on the car and all of a sudden you can run for the rest of the day and you know ultimately they're a bit of an investment you're not necessarily going to run them every day that you're out you know you could save yourself you know but we've, we've seen it the number of times donington is the worst for it where th there seems to be some level of inconsistencies with noise limits and day to day i think mm -hmm. it's just the nature of like the tracks in a bit of a bowl and yeah humidity levels and all sorts of stuff at play and there seems to be quite a variance and all the porsches are pretty much on the cusp of passing 98 eb days anyway so if anything kind of goes out of whack a little bit then all of a sudden you can't you can't run you know these guys like <laughs> i was there i felt really sorry for a bloke and he'd he'd driven from cumbria stayed over the night before taking a day off work was at donington he was there he did two laps and then the black flagged him so i make your car quieter and he's like i can't went out again black flagged him again he had to go home Not it's that. like well it's taken two days off work the track day was like 700 quid he's prepped his car he's looking forward to it so it's not only is it financial but you've you kind of blown your day um so we've kind of created product lines like that for all the cars really as much as possible um so 997 and 991 gt three models we've got a bolt-on tip 718s um we've got a bolt-on tip for our system we're also making um a solution for the factory silencer as well so if you ran 
the factory rate silencer on the 718, but you had R manifolds or OPF delete, say, mm. for instance, um, you can still then quieten up the, the, the sound level of everything, um, which is a nice solution. And then we've got something coming for the 981 GT4s because they're really, you know, as you know, quite loud from the factory. But it's just a, a nice mod, just trying to use our experience, you know, it's there's no guesswork there in the sense that we can test it in all these different circuits with on all these different cars. We know it works. So I just wouldn't want to put my name to something or sell a product to somebody and not really understand it myself fully. Yeah. You know, in all all sorts of different situations. Yeah, I totally get that. And it makes a lot of sense. I I'm the person that measures I want to be like well underneath and I'll like measure the car before and all that sort of stuff. But I've, I've had it in the radical where they're like, yeah, you need to make it quieter. And you're like, well, we've run here like a hundred times. What's the problem? But then we have some, you know, tips or whatever that go on and make it quieter. And that's just, that just is the way it is, but it's definitely a good option out there because sometimes, sometimes these things happen and you might want to yeah, go and run yeah, it exactly. a day. That's just a bit quieter. And that is, a bit of an issue i'm sort of and it it's difficult now because so many stock cars are not quiet enough i think they've started to go back that way now though it seems yeah so unless you've got a lamborghini which god knows how they get away <laughs> with what they do but um everything's starting to go quieter again um so like the 991 and 981 generation gt cars a gt4 is like 90 98 99 db 100 db on a bad day so all of a sudden like you can only run the car at silverstone and then 991 gt3 again similar 97 98 they can they can fail even in completely stock yeah. form the way stuff's going now the opf gt3 rs's are like 93 db stock. Oh, wow. and That's then the 718 gt4 is like 89 90 db <laughs> so like super quiet which is obviously good from a perspective of you can run it on track and you don't need to worry about that. But then you're kind of into the other issue where Doesn't somebody's sound like trading in the 981 GT4 and getting into a 718 and it's like, well, why does it sound so bad? And that's why I, that's why our products ended up being so successful for those cars because you know we've got, I'd say, 25% of the orders that we get are for people who don't even have the cars yet because they're just like, they know. they know that they need something sorted before they even get the car and, they're either getting installed day of collection or even before they even collect the cars, which is quite cool. Yeah. And then when you're used to a car being <clears> a certain <throat> volume, so my GT3 skit got a center bypass on the back and I run the valves open all the time. Um, I had to get a, the, some work done on it, um, some warranty stuff or the warranty was changed. So I swapped it back to the stuff exhaust. I feel like this is what everyone in the country does. Um, and then they're like, oh, this is also quite clean in comparison to everything else. It's like, yeah, because it's never been yeah. on the car. Um, been in my garage. Yeah, but I, I drove the car back from the dealership and was like, this is shit. Because <laughs> like, mm. I'd forgotten what it was like with the stock exhaust and how there's a certain level, I think, a certain volume level. And maybe as I get older, I can accept a slightly lower volume level. But that for me, a car comes alive. And like, yeah. let's say you're, you know, you're blipping your down changes and whatever. And if it's a, s a certain volume, you can't hear it. You can, mm -hmm. but you have to really listen. Whereas once the level gets to a certain noise, you're like, oh yeah, I'm pressing the throttle because like, it's really damn obvious. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
I think it's I think it's a big part of it, isn't it? And I think the way cars are going and ultimately with hybrid technology or full electric and all that sort of stuff, it, it's a big part of the driving experience, whether or not, you know, I, I think anybody can argue how, you know, capable an electric car can be versus a, an ice car. It's, you know, it's, it's, there's no question that a Taycan Turbo S is probably faster than most of the other Porsches available, including the supercars and track yeah. specials and, and everything like that. But does anybody really care? Like people, are, I think cars are so fast now, realistically, even your average ha- hatchback is, is they're not slow. Um, I think people are past caring so much about actual performance and it's starting to, feels like starting to sh- switch back into that whole driver involvement thing. Yeah. Like the, the Gory, the T50, you know, mm. That's going to be a, a wacky fast car for sure, but realistically, it could be a whole lot faster if it didn't have a manual box in it. You know, they could have more power, and it could be a bit heavier, and it could have a bit more aero and X, Y, Z. But ultimately, I think people care more almost about driver involvement. The fact that now Porsche on the 992 generation are offering PDK or manual from the off, no yeah. special, no 911R equivalent or anything like that. It's no touring. Do you want a do you want a flappy paddles or do you want a, a manual gearbox? You know, make your choice. Yeah. Whereas nine nine one, there was no choice. And I think, yeah, it's, it's cool because you, there's just so much choice out there. You can just make what you want. And ultimately that's kind of where I'm coming from. If somebody wants to turn their GT4 into a something which can be faster than a GT3 RS, then we can do that. Yeah. If they want to just add a, a simple change um, to the car such that it can pass noise limits on a particularly quiet day on their otherwise completely stock car for they're going to do one track day a year in, then we can do that as well. So yeah. it's just kind of like offering all these different avenues, really. Yeah, totally. An interesting one I saw, um, I can't remember when I saw it, was on a 992 Turbo S, you can have thin glass in the back Mm. so you can make it louder in the car as an option and i remember i saw that and i was like oh yeah that's like a it's quite a niche option but it's the person that's got a turbo that's like i'd quite like it to be a bit more like my gt3 or a bit more like a gt3 in terms of letting in all that noise and stuff from outside and you're like oh yeah Yeah. they're doing these things They're, they're adding them in yeah I think the, the sports exhaust is funny on that one actually so the the exhaust mechanically between the non-sports and sports exhaust which they charge 2800 quid for yeah. or whatever it is the only difference is that you get a button to take control over the valves the mechanically the, the exhaust is identical on, um, is this on all 992s or just on the turbo pretty much on all 992s other than the tip position, but the, the cats, the OPF and the center box are all basically the same. Um, and on the non-sports exhaust, it keeps the valves closed for more of the time. Yeah. Is that it? Really? Yeah. Oh. So, but even, even on the sports exhaust, when you get a PSE button, so when you can press the button and open the valves, it's on the electronic valve cars. Now there's so much logic in, in the valve, they open and close essentially when they want to anyway so yeah it's it's kind of a funny one so realistically you've got to change components to actually make a tangible difference we've done 
direct replacement cat pipes for those, which get rid of the OPF and replace the factory cat with a high flow cat. And they're like, they're a really good mod for that car. Um, the only trouble is, is that for European spec cars, which have got monitored particular filters, yeah. you do need to like map the ECU as well to get around that, um, just to avoid the light with a reliable solution. Um, oh, so, so if you remove OPF, you now get a light. Yeah, yeah. So they have a, a pressure sensor before and after the OPF, which monitors if you get a buildup of particulates in the core um, and it sees pressure differential before and after the OPF and it determines that there's some kind of restriction building up. It'll go into like a super lean burn and it shoots the exhaust gas temperatures up to like mental temperature. I don't even know. So it's just like 1100 degrees C okay. to try and, to <laughs> try and basically burn all the stuff out of the particulate filters. Um, you, you hear it do it sometimes when if you're doing steady state throttle um, so it'll kind of know that it needs to do it and it'll wait for certain everything to be kind of correct and then it'll initiate it. But yeah, it's, it's something you've got to get around with now, I suppose. Um, but offering solutions which can provide a solution for those who, who want to go down that route is something that, you know, is kind of nice to have as well and just, you know, determine whether you want to do that or not. Most of the time, European spec guys, uh, European spec cars, owners will kind of go down the route of just changing the, the center box say for instance and they'll keep all the yeah all the emissions devices you know kind of there and present again that's why coming back around again having that <laughs> yeah. modular approach is nice because you can just swap and change and it's not a case of having to swap out the whole exhaust um or, and start again really yeah yeah that makes sense and that that would be my attitude, I think, if definitely if you're under warranty and all that sort of stuff, you're like, I don't want to just start ripping everything out and having warning no. lights and and stuff like that. But it's that is super interesting that it's literally it's a mapping thing between the sports exhaust and non sports exhaust. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you do obviously you get the button, but the exhaust has still got valves and it's still yeah. Because I have a thing yeah. for my nine nine seven that I plug in in the back that um, gives me a switch and I can have it f- fully open or fully shut. I think they now do one where okay. you can have it as, as auto as well. And that, I would say, for anyone that's got a 997 GT3 or RS, that's the best starting point, hands down, mm. for modifying your exhaust because I hate the sound of a closed exhaust. It kills mm. all character. Like, all of the nice noises that come out of exhausts and engines come out when it's open and it's nothing to do with the volume. Yeah, I mean, even on the on the GT cars, which have got the vacuum-operated exhaust valves, even when you've got the exhaust button open, the the valves will be open at idle. And as soon as you basically re- release the clutch out of first gear, the valves will close again. And they'll stay closed um, until 3,800 RPM in GT3 products. But in 718 GT4, they don't open until 5,000 RPM in first Whoa. two gears. So basically until you know and the gearing's long on a 718 gt4 yeah. so unless you're doing like 70 miles an hour in second gear the valves don't even open so it's um yeah it's quite interesting having that additional valve control and being able to physically keep them open at all times is quite a nice mod like you say yeah, a lot yeah. of guys are doing that on the 718s and, and is that a relatively easy thing to do on the 718s uh yeah we don't we don't offer that product 
um, ourselves. Just do you know what it looks know, like? It's a it's a little module which is basically goes in line with the with the controller for the factory exhaust vacuum operation. Okay, so and it basically intercepts that, and you've got a little fob, and you can just kind of you can either resort to factory operation or you can just pin them open at all times. Yeah. So it's quite simple in that respect, but it's nice to have um, to be able to just kind of, you know, if you want to have them open at all times, you can do that. Yeah. Have you thought about playing with gearing or is that at the level you don't want to be starting taking people's engines out? Yeah, I think the gearing side of things is funny. You know, we've, we've got a solution which makes the gear shorter and that's more power. That's what I say. Yeah. You know, I think it sounds silly, but the gear has become shorter if you're pulling harder through them. Um, On track. And the, one of the reasons where why the 718 inspired, you know, GT4 inspired a 981 SL got so much stick was, you know, the engine's not got particularly that much power or torque. So if you're basically pulling through gears with half throttle in a GT3, I bet the gears would feel long in that as well. You know, if you look at RPM, you know, redline in second gear in your car, 997 GT3. I'm pretty sure it's just over 80 miles an hour. And in, in the 718 GT4, it's like 84 miles an hour. Yeah. It's basically the same, but you would never jump in a GT3 and go, oh, the gears are so long yeah. because you're pulling through them pretty quickly. So there's, there's a number of reasons why we don't do that. Um, one of which is it kind of, the problem kind of goes away and you just don't think about it once you've got more power. Um, but also if you change the, the gear set themselves, then you end up with really weird ratios and it's kind of super close from second through to fifth and then you get a big rev drop and fifth and sixth just feel like overdrive even though they're not right um and on track it doesn't make the car any faster and on the road you just end up changing gear more so i don't think that's for me is a great solution because there's nothing wrong with the gear drops and the splits and the ratios themselves. It's just like the whole lot could do with coming down. Yeah. But there is also a solution for that. You can change the crown wheel and pinion, which changes the diff ratio. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, everything chops like, I think it's 20, about 20% off each gear. Yeah. Um, but the trouble with that is that essentially you've only got the same amount of room to play with within the diff casing. And once you change the ratios to something which is more preferential for it, you know, like a shorter gearing ratio, the actual drive surfaces from the crown wheel to the pinion end up being reduced. And then ultimately that's going to have an effect on, um, on, you know, the durability of the part. Mm. So it's a bit of a can of worms. I've, I, yeah, I've, I've not gone down that route. I would, you know, it, I, pro- I don't really speak about it because i wouldn't want to kind of come across like i'm saying that they're not good solutions they are good solutions for a lot of people out there depending on how you use a car but for me and for my customers who use them on track it's not something that i would particularly advise just because i don't think that a it'll make the car any faster ultimately on a lap time Mm. and b i wouldn't want to make the car no faster and less reliable yeah. just for the sake of feeling like you're changing gear more. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's it's a bit of a funny one that I think, like I say, the best solution for me is just 
add some more juice and then all of a sudden it's it just feels more exciting anyway really to be honest yeah i totally get that fair enough and definitely if you're using it on track then it's you don't yeah the gears the gears are good on track i mean you know you're a little bit in between gear donington's a bit of a funny one you end up being in between gears everywhere at donington but everywhere else i've been with the car it's actually okay to be honest and like i say once you've got more power you can kind of you can take the gear up option you know the car's got sufficient power to pull through it and you end up being just as quick as i say turn the hanger at silverstone i think we're you know within one mile an hour of a gt3 rs with our Mm -hmm. exhaust system on it as well so there's you know obviously a gt3 rs is more draggy but ultimately you're getting along you know you're doing over 150 mile an hour down the back straight there with a car which would do 140 mile an hour stock so there's there's quite a big difference yeah 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 totally cool well i normally wrap these up with five questions you ready yeah do you have a most memorable well maybe maybe (laughs) (laughs) you don't have a choice do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey yes not particularly for good reasons to be honest um i drove i I did a test at le mans and it was quite a long uh, quite a late call decision to do it and i couldn't get a flight and i just kind of resided to the fact that i was gonna have to drive to le mans and back Mm. and it was it was on my birthday i was stuck in traffic on a motorway somewhere in france (laughs) but i got to drive a ferrari around le mans so it was okay um so it was a bit of a kind of mixed bag um i love I actually i love driving in europe um but it was just a bit of an unusual circumstance but yeah it was that was quite an interesting one what what ferrari were you driving at the end of that uh it was a 488 gte um so that's for jmw motorsport they did they'd got their new car um right before le mans so they made the change from the 458 to the 488 i'd driven the 458 quite a bit um, we'd won Le Mans series with that car um, just a year before. And so they wanted me to be in the car just to do some baseline stuff. Yeah. Um, the drivers who were racing the car were like more than capable of doing it themselves. It was just a case of having someone that they knew and they could just mm. trust to jump in the car and do a few laps and stuff like that. So that was just on the test day um, a few weeks before the race. Um, but yeah, that was that was good fun. Quite, quite fun. Cool. Five car garage, unlimited value. That's oh my fit, god, has fit into your life. That is hard. Definitely a GT3 RS somewhere in there. Which just one? because I'm now official fan, fanboy <laughs> status of Porsche. So as much as I used to hate them yeah. until the 991 generation car came out, and then I just thought, oh, wow, these are like next level. You know, no offense to 997 owners, obviously out there. That's right. Um, That's right. It's a very different yeah. thing. If I was driving it's only on track. I I would totally just the latest the latest RS would be the one like just if yeah. I wanted to drive a Porsche on track if there wasn't a race yeah car. definitely but I think GT3 RS for track 918 for road just because I just think they're cool yeah um you, you definitely have to throw in some kind of NA you know manual box something or other so you know going back to kind of growing up. McLaren F1 was always mm. the one, as it is, I'm sure, for yeah. a lot of people out there. Um, and yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably just have a garage full of like so really expensive, more, unreliable, <laughs> impractical cars. <laughs> I've got an X5M competition actually, which is genuinely the best daily car I've ever had. Um, so I think 
that would be in there to just use day to day. Is it not got quite stiff suspension? Or is it? I'm not sure I haven't driven it. Yeah, they do actually. And we've got a solution for that, which is actually quite nice. Um, we've, we've fitted a MSS spring kit to the car and they change um, the kind of philosophy around having, you know, if you just uh, a road car, just got like one linear, linear rate spring mm. on, on that. And they change to a, a dual rate spring with like a, a separate tender. So initial ride is controlled by the tender. And then as soon as you load it up, it kind of goes into the main. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of like the philosophy that you'd have with like a helper on a, on a, like a race damper or something, but rather than just supporting the stack, it kind of actually supports the weight of the car and kind of sorts out the initial ride. And that's like transformed it. Wow. Okay. So yeah, it's quite a nice mod. One of the, I don't know. Oh, one really. more. I do you have a race car. Oh, what? Sorry. Would you have a race car? I think the best race car I've ever driven is that LMP1 car. So, but I just don't know whether people would really be friends with you if you took that to a track day with the... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If you're doing like you could take that. around Silverstone. You could take that to um, the Peter Auto events. But you wouldn't be able to use yeah. it that many times a year. You could use it at like six events a year. Or there's another one as well. There's a Silverstone Classic and stuff. You can take them at that. You could do that sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, probably not really. Like, quite I love fast. racing cars, but I like road cars more. I think. Mm. I actually, I've driven a, I've driven a Veyron, and that was surprisingly good. I don't know if you've I've been, been in one, one or experienced it, um, but nothing surprised me as much as that did. Actually, I really expected it to just be cumbersome and just big and heavy, and yeah, you know, obviously a rocket ship in a straight line, but. I was amazed at how good that was. So I bet the I bet the Chiron, especially the latest stuff. So that Chiron per sport that looks per like sport thing, yeah. looks incredible. So yeah, why not? We'll have one of them as well. Why not? Why not? <laughs> okay, if you can only drive one car for the rest of your life, what is it? And you're allowed a five hundred pound banger on the side. I think a GT3, to be honest, because I think if you really wanted to, you could have comfort seats in it, and it's actually got a reasonable amount of space in it. And mm. it's fast and you can take it to a track day and then you can go and do a thousand mile road, road trip in it or something. And, you know, you just, it doesn't feel like any less of a experience. I think, I think a GT3, 901 yeah. GT3. Manual? Uh, no, just cause I'm too lazy for manuals these days. <laughs> it annoys me when I have to change gear in the, in the game. And to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. What do you think is the most undervalued, car at the moment undervalued as in physical value or underappreciated as in like price like what's cheap as in should should be worth more i think the best car that i've had full stop was a target gts uh 911 target gts and the 991.2 generation stuff is like i think maybe because of the turbos and and things they've kind of like potentially bottomed out a bit yeah. And I think as as the cars kind of start to go in that full circle again and people get their head around everything having turbos and efficiency mm. and all this kind of stuff, I think I think something like a yeah, you say a nine nine one point two Carrera base model, you can pick one of them up for now, you know, about fifty grand. And that's a phenomenal car. Yeah. You know what you know, you think of golf R's like 
45 grand <laughs> yeah and an a45s is like 60 grand yeah i think i think for for how good a car you, you get again my porsche my porsche fanboys coming yeah. out but i think for me something like that because with very very simple mods that can just be an absolute rocket ship as well and you get all the benefits of everything else um but yeah for me i think it'd be something like that yeah it's been the first that switch to the turbo engines it's the first time you can get a pretty much a base spec Carrera to be not far off a what a turbo would have been the generation before, just with like yeah. a bit of an ECU remap. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, I mean, you put um, factory GTS turbos yeah. and exhaust and a remap, 650 horsepower. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> do you really need anything faster than that? You know, it'd leave a GT3 for dust. Yeah, I think something like that. And they do 40, 40 miles to the gallon. And, nice. you know, it's a, it's a nice looking car, but it's it's just a 911. You know, it doesn't look like in yeah. your face, particularly. No, I think I they're think, good cars. I think there's a lot a lot going for that that sort of generation. Right, final question. What's the most interesting car to you at the moment? Um, I just watched the T50S video mm. yesterday. So this Gordon Murray automotive thing. I just think... For me, that's just <laughs> that's just it. I think maybe like I'm on the cusp of the generation who really like a screaming NA motor, low weight, you know, not something which is massively aero driven. You know, the, the car comes on, you know, the road car comes on pilot sport four S's, you know. Yeah. It's not it's not a it's a great tire, but it's not the cup two because that's not necessarily because that's just not what they're going after. They're just chasing driver involvement. And that's like, to me is infinitely more interesting than the latest Pagani or, or anything like that. I mean, it's obviously it's super exotic, but I just think as far as driving experience goes, that's what I think that's where my focus would be because mm. I think, you know, obviously I've been in a fortunate position where I've driven racing cars and the feeling of, really going fast around the lap is is great but ultimately if you bolt on more aero on a car and you go 10 seconds faster around a lap it doesn't feel like you're going 10 seconds faster because the feeling of going fast is a result of how close to the car moving around and yeah. that feeling of being on the limit and all that sort of stuff so i just think if you can do that at a more reasonable speed then ultimately the car ends up being more fun like the the GR Yaris we we've, we've got one of those and that is an absolutely perfect example you know it's not a rocket ship but it's surprisingly quick for mm. for what it can extract out of the package but it's um it's just so much fun like you you can rag through first second third gear chuck it through some corners and you're only doing 60 mile an hour so yeah. you're not breaking the speed limit down the back road and you're just having the time of your life by the time you're out of second gear in the GT4 you're doing 90 yeah. And that's not even a fast car. You you step that up to any like hypercar, even even the McLarens like seven six five LT. You know they're coming out of the factory with nine nine hundred horsepower yeah. when people actually stick them on a dyno and see what they're making. And they're just on the road. They're just not fun. Like I don't think anyway. They're just so efficient, so quick. Every time you touch the throttle, you're doing over, you're doing three figures. Yeah. Um, so I think something like that, which is going to make a great sound and you can pull it to a set of lights and give it a blip. And yeah, I just think something like that for me is that I think they, they just nail on the head, really. 
Absolutely. And I think manufacturers at the moment, it's it's tough with all the emissions and they're not they're not necessarily allowed to make the cars they necessarily want to make. But you say to me, you've got an unlimited budget, which car do you buy? It's tricky because I'm not 100% set on the T50s like looks. I don't necessarily like the looks, mm. but the ethos of the car, that is exactly what I want in a, if you're going to spend loads of money. If it was, you take it down to 150 grand, it's pretty much a manual GT3. Like if you said you could yeah. add a more budget, what would you do? I would go, I would just make it lighter. I would make it lighter, still have a manual gearbox, make it rev and have a similar amount of power. And if it could be a thousand mm. kilos or eleven hundred kilos, that would be amazing. And that would—that is literally all I want on the road. Yeah. And okay, you, you, every now and then you might try something that's crazy just to try it. But all the manufacturers just making these more, faster and faster and faster and more automatic cars. Yeah, it's just not fun. And I think no, there's people like ourselves, and I think there are a lot of people out there that go make me a car that is fun on a road and I'll buy it. But all this other stuff is just like, it's just not that interesting to me anymore at all. I think you're right. I think that kind of comes back around to what I was saying with the GT3 generation race cars. Like they are faster, no doubt about it. They are, you know, I think in in race car terms, easy to drive translates to lap time to a certain degree. And easy to drive doesn't necessarily mean more fun. You know, whether a race car is fun or not to drive is irrelevant, isn't it? People are focused on lap times, of course, but for a road car application, if the car's more fun, generally means because you're kind of, you're working around a set of compromises. So, you know, does the car move around a little bit more? Is it just feel a bit more nimble on its feet? Is it just actually got less grip than what yeah. it could have, but at the detriment of performance overall lap time? but it actually just makes it, it's such a fine balance. And that's where I think Gordon Murray's like keeps referencing, you know, the McLaren F1, because that's still like, when was that made? 95? Yeah. Something like that. I'm not, I'm McLaren sure. F1. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite a long time ago. People still talking about it now. Like nothing else has come close to it. I mean, I've never driven one. It's unlikely that I'll get the opportunity to do so, but you know, like you say, if you're going to say, what what would you make like a, a perfect example of? I think a seven eight GT four with a GT three engine in it, yeah. which revs to ten thousand RPM, yeah. which makes six hundred horsepower, which has got ind- independent rear suspension and maybe a bit of a wider tire. Would you want anything more than that? Really, you know, that's like no. that's probably where I'd go with yeah. doing something like that, and. Will that ever get made? I don't know. I don't know whether Porsche will go down the route of doing that. So rather than making a thousand horsepower hybrid, which weighs fifteen hundred kilos, will they make something which weighs a thousand kilos and it's got less power and a manual it's, box and it's just a bit more so involved? Much better. Like you know, and I think there's an opportunity for manufacturers. Like well, one example of this, which is I think is hilarious at the moment, is the Ferrari SF90 four-wheel drive hybrid heavy like i don't know how heavy it is 1600 kilos 1700 kilos and they they put recently a bunch of americans found a road and put a 765 lt against an sf90 they're the same speed 
like literally pretty much the same speed. The LT yeah. is possibly a tiny bit faster when you're rolling. You go, well, one of those is a thousand horsepower, four wheel drive, blah, 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 blah. And one's rear wheel drive, light, 12 something with a lot of horsepower. Like there's an absolutely no question if I was buying two, one of those cars, which one I personally would buy, I would buy the light one because what's the point in having more weight? Like it's ridiculous. Yeah. But looking at say McLaren, they, these companies like Ferrari and McLaren, they've got an opportunity to go, right, we're making, let's say the 720S. This is just going to be the tech monster, really fast, still light, just crazy fast. And then they're making a car to slot in in the middle. And if what they've done now is they've done a hybrid car, which is, is quite interesting from an interesting point of view, but if they could have done an NA hybrid, I don't know, think they could get the emissions as low, but they have an opportunity to go, because they're sort of making a baby car that does what the good the big car does. So you kind of yeah. you pull people away from buying the more expensive one because they're all really fast. Whereas if you said the mid we're going to make a car and it's four people that just want a lightweight, authentic driving experience. Now, whether this sells, mm. maybe there's just not enough people out there that want that experience. I don't know, but if they if they did that and made the car that their customers are not asking for, you could potentially get all the people that are hovering around going, I would buy something of that sort of range if it did this. And it would just be totally different to everything everyone else was making. And you would sell a ton. But I think you just touched on something there, which is completely like on point. If they just made something which nobody really is asking for, you know, is anybody actually knocking on the door saying, McLaren, please make X, Y, Z. But that's kind of like what we're doing in a sense. You know, we've built a, an Alcinex exhaust system for a, a Yaris, yeah. which costs 15% of the value of the car. <laughs> yeah. It's like, does it, is anybody asking for that? No, like most people are offended by the thought of, by the Spending fact that, that much, we even yeah. offer a, a £5,000 exhaust system for a Yaris, but we've sold loads of them already so these people <laughs> what sort do of numbers have you, have you sold so far 30 30 rear systems and about 30. 15 to 18 yeah that's so of various different specs that's yeah. you know the the five grand example it would be yeah the full full system so it's the not all five grand um the start from two grand but you know there's there's whilst everybody's out there fighting to create systems which are three four five hundred quid and all arguing amongst themselves as to whose is the cheapest we're up there with something which is like five times more expensive yeah. and I, I just think like you say until you kind of obviously it's one thing making an exhaust yeah. and it's another thing <laughs> producing a car there's economies of scale obviously but i think until you stick your neck out and make it how do you know like yeah. gordon murray like he's charging two and a half million pounds for a car which doesn't serve any other purpose other than being fun not really made by and a company that's made sold cars. all of them straight away yeah they were oversubscribed they sold all of them from the announcement date within 24 hours and they were oversubscribed by something like 150 cars mm. now you look at all of these people making the same thing whether it's like an electric hybrid hyper thing or whatever magic for two million and they can't sell 10 of them yeah and he's he could sell 200 of these and he's not even like a b- 
big name manufacturer. He's just a no, guy. And equally, he doesn't want to sell 200. That's kind of part of it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So they can charge two million, two and a half million pounds for a car, which probably costs them, let's say, a million quid each. You know, by the time they've taken into consideration development and all that sort of stuff. I don't, I don't know how much, how far off that is, but I would imagine. But yeah, imagine, not. let's say Ferrari. Okay, Ferrari is a bit unique because they can sort of sell the cars irrespective of how good they are, which is, and they're all good, but like, you know what I mean? You can take the roof off yeah. and sell it for two and a half million and people will buy it and then be like, hang on, I have to wear a helmet all the time. This is weird. Um, but if, if, yeah. if Ferrari turned around and made a manual high revving V12 in a road car, yeah yeah but everybody would buy of course yeah but i think it's nice you know when people stick their neck out and do something which not everybody's you know it will offend some people and it doesn't serve a purpose really yeah i think it's great do you you need a do you need a t50 in your garage no but do you want one yeah well most people probably do and that's cool (laughs) isn't it you know ultimately i think just sticking your neck out and creating something which is a bit out of the ordinary but I think everything is going back to that. I think the the manufacturers are all starting to understand that just being fast in a straight line is, or a lap time or anything like that, doesn't actually equate to the amount of fun that you're going to have driving the car. And people want to have fun, surely. Yeah. yeah. This is, and that's why we've seen the rise of the resto mod and all of those sorts of cars, because people, essentially people are taking old cars and turning them into this thing that you can't buy from a manufacturer anymore. Now, possibly for safety reasons yeah. and whatever, but I think a lot of people would like to buy a new... They like... I like safety, and I like the fact that all of those sorts of things, I like to be able to plug my phone in and whatever. So if someone made the new car that I really, really, really want, absolutely buy it. But at the moment, we're just Maybe we just end up one. with this... Maybe we should make one a Yaris NA. Yeah. <laughs> 100 horsepower. No, no, that's a bad idea. No, no, no thanks. <laughs> You keep keep making the exhaust and selling them to people that have bought it as a toy and yeah. you'll, you'll do well. Because I feel like a lot of people have bought them for fun. They're like, this is fun. I've owned a lot, lot of other cars, but I still want a Yaris. Yeah, I think our customer base certainly is is those those owners. You know, I'm not trying to appeal to any particular set of customers with any of our products, really. We make stuff, make sure it works, and then present it in a way that it's attractive to those who will appreciate that the work that's gone into it. Um, but I think our, our Yaris stuff is, is really for those who are going to just, they've probably also got a GT3 in the garage and amongst other things, and they, they're using it a weekend. And if they've got a track day booked at Alton Park and it's like the heavens have opened, do they want to take the quarter of a million pound GT3 RS or, are they going to jump in a 30 grand Yaris and have probably just as much fun yeah. and be basically as fast with, you know, a lot less risk. Totally. Yeah. You're probably just going to jump in that. And that's, that's a big part of our client base for the Yaris stuff is a lot of them are existing customers who have already got Porsche Porsches or Porsche products from us. Um, so that's been quite interesting really. Yeah. And that, and that, I think that sort of surmises it all. Like you build a cool car, and people will come and buy it. Because if you'd said to your GT3 customers, do you think you would be buying a Toyota in two years' time? They'd possibly mm. go, 
I don't see me looking at any of the current range and going, maybe a GT86, but like unlikely to buy anything. And then they come out with something that's genuinely cool, like, totally different to what everyone else is doing. Built a rally car, plonked it on the road. It's probably cost them a lot of money, whatever. But I'm excited about Toyota again. Like, and I think yeah. a ton of people are going, I massively rate that they didn't need to do this. It didn't make any sense. It's a manual, like all this stuff. Like, but I still, uh, but I want one. It's a, it's a marketing exercise, isn't it, really? That whole car, you know, when you think where it was born from, it was born from creating a homologation special to go racing. Or why did Toyota go racing? To sell road cars, to have Toyota yeah. brand talked about in the press. Like, you've not been able to see anything other than Toyota <laughs> yeah. for the last two months, really. And obviously that'll die down. And a lot of people are saying, well, it's just hype. Like, I don't get it. It's hype. And they also almost don't want to like the car just because people say it's good, which is fine. Mm. But, you know, until you drive it, like it is good. All these, all these guys who know what they're talking about are not saying, they're not all saying the same things. Yeah. Just, just to get on the bandwagon. Like the car is a lot of fun and they've sold all of them. And I think now if you order one, it's like May 22 before you get one. Um, When I ordered mine, I got it within a month and that was only in November. Yeah. So it just shows like the, the interest and it's done its job. It's going to sell a load of cars and they'll probably sell a load of other stuff off the back of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's nice when people stick the neck out a bit and, and go with an idea. So yeah, it really is. And, and they need to see what that. comes next. Wasn't it? It was Henry Ford or someone said, if I asked people what they want, they'd ask me for a faster horse. <laughs> yeah 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 i suppose it's full circle isn't it really but yeah it'd be interesting to see what comes out i wouldn't be surprised in the next few years to see more and more lower powered lighter cars yeah whether they're na or turbocharged i suppose it's emissions isn't it but yeah i think it's 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 interesting to see what will come i think that people are definitely getting it and like you say the likes of singer you know they jumped on that like probably before people even realized that's what they were really wanting. Yeah. Um, and now they're so established that you, you can't buy one of them and yeah, you know, no. they're just what are they doing. They're taking a, a 964, making it look like an older car, <laughs> putting modern tech in it. And there you go. There you go. Million quid, please. 800, <laughs> 900 grand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. No problem at all. It's been fun. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.